0: um so uh, as David said, I'm going to kind of talk to you a little bit about um, how I've ended up where I where I have today, which has obviously changed in the last couple of months, um, and the experience of launching the Huffington Post um, and how we grew it uh, in what I believe is probably one of the most um, competitive um, media landscapes uh, around the world, although there might be some of you in the audience who will disagree with me. Um, but my starting point is I genuinely believe this is the most exciting time to be working in the media industry. Um, there's a lot of doom and gloom about it, um, and I can see where that comes from. And, you know, we hear there was headlines, I think, at really early this week or last week, Telegraph laying off another 55 journalists, and, and those are things that make the headlines. But I think we forget just how many different ways there are to be a journalist today and how many different brands there are. The fact that we could take a brand like Huffington Post, which was pretty unknown in this country, and and grow it to a UK audience of nearly 9 million in less than three years is testament to just how the landscape has shifted in a very short amount of time. And uh, talking to David at lunch, um, one of my first uh, journalistic uh, endeavours was work experience at Cosmopolitan magazine. Um, and you know this isn't that long ago, so I was at university at the time, and there was only one computer in the entire office, which was connected to the internet. And in my two weeks there, I was the only person who logged onto it. Um, and and that it still kind of blows my mind that not just in my lifetime, but in my career, it's changed so much. And if it weren't for the internet, I, I basically wouldn't have a job. So um, I'm very pleased that things have changed in the in the way that they have. Um, So I I always knew that I wanted to be a journalist. I think there was a very um, short-lived aim to be a vet and then went on a hideous French exchange and and I got to choose the rabbit that we would eat that night when I didn't realise that's what I was doing because my grasp of French wasn't that great. So yeah, I decided not to be a vet um, but loved writing. Um, And I thought I wanted to work uh, in women's magazines I loved reading women's magazines, um, but I wanted to do features because I felt that would show that I was more intelligent if I was doing features rather than writing about fashion and beauty, um, which I then did later do. Um, And uh, so, uh, student newspaper at university, I studied um, English and theatre studies at Warwick, uh, but spent more of my time working on the student paper, um, edited that in my second year, then just about managed to to, uh, scrape to one in uh, in my third year, having spent most of the time locked in the Warwick-Borre office, um, and then came uh, out of university, and I was, I was very lucky uh, in that the guy who'd been the editor before me had gone to work in a contract publishing firm called John Brown, uh, John Brown Citrus Publishing for a while, I think it's called John Brown again now, um, and they found work for me basically from the day I graduated um, on various different high-profile titles like the Waitrose Food Illustrated magazine, the Orange (laughs) magazine, the Virgin Trains magazine. Um, So I think that was the first thing I learned very quickly that my aspirations, I mean I genuinely thought I was gonna walk out of university and edit The Guardian. Um, Perhaps wasn't wasn't gonna happen quite that easily but what I was very lucky was that I started earning money as a journalist even even though I perhaps wasn't writing about the things that I thought I would do. Um, And then I got a job on the Swarovski magazine um, which was six months basically polishing crystal animals in a basement. Um, and when I'd polished enough crystal animals, um, I was allowed out. It really was in a basement. It was so depressing. Um, but they allowed me to interview um, uh, designers. And this was at the time when Swarovski was beginning to put its funds into backing fashion designers. So I got to interview people like Zach Posen, um, very well-known uh, New York designer now, but certainly wasn't at the time. Um, and suddenly thought, you know what, actually there's this whole world of creativity and fashion that is fascinating um, and I actually had quite lot to be a part of that um, and then I applied for a job at Condé Nast in their digital team and that was mainly because the job was advertised as writer and the idea of having a business card with the word writer and working for Condé Nast with all these amazing brands just just was a dream come true um, and I'd done work experience at some of their magazines in the past um, and so uh, got that job And it was one of those really kind of lucky things because looking back, if someone had said, would you like to work for a website or would you like to work for a magazine? I clearly would have said, I want to be on the print title. But this job came up, I went for it. um, And there was a very small team of us working on the seventh floor of Vogue House in London. I'm pretty sure most people at the time didn't even realize there was a seventh floor to Vogue House. The lift didn't go that high. We had to get out on the sixth floor, walk through Condé Nast Traveler and Brides magazine, and then find our way up to the attic. Um, and in this room you had a few journalists, a few developer guys, three of them, two of them called Dave's, every time the sites fell over, which happened a lot in those days, you'd stand up and go, Dave, and someone would jump up and kind of, I don't know what we did, sort of crank a wheel and get them get them running again, and our sales team. And I learnt so much in that short period of time. I can remember an email going around titled, What is SEO? And one of the developers trying to teach us what SEO was, and we were like, no, we don't need to worry about that. Um, so I was there for about three and a half years and we were lucky and Condé Nast was actually investing in digital um, at the time. And then we kind of all slowly got picked off one by one by the other publishing houses uh, in London. Uh, I went to work for IPC Media and launched Marie Claire's digital edition. Um, and this was, this was beginning to get to this interesting time. So when I was at Condé Nast, the digital team was totally separate to the magazines. I used to sometimes wander down uh, the road to Glamour's office and say hello to the editor but quite frankly she wasn't too worried what we were getting up to uh, on the website, very very separate I went to Marie Claire and they were beginning to think actually this, this digital world is something that, that we need to get our hands on, um, so launched uh, Marie Claire online me and then I kind of hired a few t- few people around me and then was given the task of integrating digital and uh, print teams and i I think it's one of the hardest things I've done and I I wouldn't say I even did it that successfully there because you had this huge tension between the print journalists and the digital teams and the print team especially on a monthly magazine who are working about three months out from publication date to then say to them and now I want you to write something that's happening today was kind of mind-blowing um and Look, you you can still see it looking into magazine worlds, and actually, digital teams who now have been moved into magazine teams, and trying to make that dynamic work, and it's it's not easy. I don't think there's there's a one size fits all solution to that. And um, even on the newspapers, you're struggling with that, and they are used to daily deadline. Um, I then moved into a uh, an associate editor role across both because I think they could see there were lots of great ideas coming from, I guess, the young digital upstarts. And as magazine revenues were declining trying to use some of that energy and creativity uh, on the print title was something that was worth exploring and um, and then so this doesn't become just an entire session about my CV I'll start speeding up um, <laughs> AOL approached me about being editor-in-chief um, and origi- um, initially said in AOL, doesn't necessarily sound like a, a brand, a media brand, that I want to go and work for, um, but they promised me that I could launch things, and I love launching things. So I went along, launched a uh, fashion and beauty site, that's kind of what I, I knew, um, and I'd been there about six months when um, an email uh, came through from Tim Armstrong, the CEO of AOL, saying, you're about to start hearing rumours that we're buying the Huffington Post, um, and I wanted you to hear it from me first. Um, And I was standing on the train platform first thing in the morning, reading emails on my BlackBerry, um, and uh, saw this email. And I didn't really think about it, but loved Huffington Post, absolutely loved Huffington Post. It had always been when I was at Marie Claire, and we were about to have the monthly magazine meeting, and you thought, oh my God, I've got no ideas. would jump on Huffington Post and would come up with 10 in the space of 30 seconds, and then go in and impress the (sighs) editor-in-chief. So I, um, I, on the train, emailed Arianna Huffington, it's not difficult to find her email address, um, emailed her and introduced myself and said I would love the opportunity to launch Huffington Post in the UK. And long story short, she said yes. There were a few phone conversations uh, along the way. Um, uh, she said yes, but then gave me um, 15 weeks to launch it, um, three of which I was on honeymoon for marriage didn't last, there might be something to do with launching big news sites at the same time, as That's a whole other story, um, and so I was away for a substantial period of that time, and we were, we were kind of the guinea pigs for how you were going to roll this brand out across the world, Canada got in there just before me, and uh, yes, yeah, so in a very short period of time we had to hire journalists who were going to get their head around the fact that we were going to do something quite different. Um, And and back then, hiring for a brand that, as I said, not that many people had heard was was very difficult. And there were some really interesting uh, interviews. I was interviewing quite a senior news editor from a very well-known news brand who actually was working on their digital side. And I said to him in the interview, talk to me about social media. And he said yeah I think my girlfriend's got a Facebook profile and then paused and went that wasn't the answer you were looking for was it no I don't think that you're probably going to be right for the Huffington Post team and then there was another who I was uh, interviewing for a blogs editor role and said the same question and he said well that's absolutely something I would expect my assistant to be doing now, there were two things wrong with that sentence one we are all going to get our hands dirty and two if you think there are going to be assistants in this team <laughs> you've, uh, you're looking at a very different budget to me so um, on day one well actually on day two we had eight members of the team day one we had seven because my news editor didn't start till the day after we launched which was particularly bad timing um, but three month notice periods that wasn't something we'd really taken into account because obviously the Americans don't have to deal with that um, but we did and um, in my infinite wisdom, I had said to Ariana, there is no point launching in the summer. Nothing happens in the summer. This was the summer of the London riots, of the Oslo massacre, Amy Winehouse dying. It we'd would, it would get to a Friday evening and every Friday we'd go... See you on Monday, thinking that the and at this stage we only had one person covering the weekends, and there wasn't a single weekend where it wasn't, no, actually, we'll see you first thing on Saturday morning because something big was happening. It was my politics editor who, who texted me and said, Amy Winehouse has died. He was like, Do you need me to cover this story? And I was like, Yeah, I'm at someone's birthday party, I need you. My politics editor had to write the Amy Winehouse obituary. We were that small a team um, at launch. But it meant that everyone did a little bit of everything, and when I kind of think back to that Huffington Post uh, startup period, again, it was this kind of hot house of learning, and everyone had to act as mini marketeers, and you know that's what kind of ties into um, what we call today's session because I don't think the idea of having an editor or a writer or a sub editor will exist in the same way in the future. The Huffington Post team, and I see this more and more, even in the traditional news organisations, are really having to become multimedia journalists. It's a a term that's kind of banded about. Um, But when I see the people coming out from university at the moment, and those people I'd be interviewing for the um, entry-level positions at Huffington Post, they were happy presenting on camera. They could edit their own video. They could film their own video. They understood what their social media responsibilities would be. I didn't even see them as responsibilities, it was how they lived their life, so why wouldn't they be promoting the article they just wrote? Why wouldn't they be garnering feedback or getting quotes from um, the, the sort of people that they had access to through Twitter, Facebook and, and all these other sites that are, um, are popping up? I'm now working for a, a, a really huge global organisation. I'm having to learn about social media sites in um, China and Japan, and that's um, that's a whole new learning curve for me. But that's what we identified, and I think that's, that was key to our success. Everybody did a bit of everything, and that didn't mean that we didn't have specialists. Um, someone like Mehdi Hassan, who we hired as political director, we, we wanted to have the heavyweights that we matched with the, with the kind of young upstarts who were coming straight out of college, and that idea of kind of the old and the new. I don't necessarily mean that in ages, but still keeping everything that's important about journalism at the heart of what we did, so fact-checking, interviewing, being out on the ground, crafting a story, but you match that with amazing technology, brilliant social media, interactive elements to the site. And when you brought those two things together, that's what made Huffington Post work, I believe. Um, there was no point us coming to the UK and trying to be exactly the same as everyone else because, you know, the, the Times, the Guardian, the Telegraph, the Sun, the Mirror, the Mail, they do a really good job at what they do and they've had decades, if not centuries, to perfect that art, we had to show that there was a different reason to come to Huffington Post. And one of my probably favorite moments, it was probably when I realized it was time for me to go, was I was shopping in Topshop, uh, and I was using my discount card, and um, someone, the, the girl behind the tail said to me, well, where do you work? And it used to be, you know, you'd say Marie Claire, or, or Vogue, or, or any of those brands, and they'd be like, wow. Um, and for a while, you said Huffington Post, and everyone looked at you kind of puzzled. And I said to the Huffington Post, and she said, oh, my goodness, I go on there every single day. And there is always something interesting that makes me think. And I thought then, actually, I've achieved what we set out to do um, with Huffington Post. We wanted, peop- we wanted to make people think differently. <coughs> and when we launched the site, I heard over and over again, well, if you're not going to be politically aligned, surely that's going to be really dull. And you're just going to sit in the middle and you won't have a point of view. And why would people read that when they're used to news brands giving them a political bias with their stories? Um, And our mission was to kind of cut through that. That didn't mean that we were going to sit in a nice central position and think that everyone was doing a really good job. But it would mean that we could take issues in a slightly different way. and We could look at each issue rather through a sort of a left versus right model, but through a right versus wrong model. Um, and and it was that idea that we would make people think and with the huge collective of bloggers that we amassed there were 10,000 just in the UK by the time I left the organisation we would put opposing views up against each other Um, we had something called Change My Mind which was uh, actually um, created in the US but then the US market didn't didn't really love it but the UK did when we would pose a question the first time we used it was is horse racing wrong or right? And you'd vote whether you thought yes, no, or you were sitting on the fence. Um, no pen intended for really the horse racing. And then we would pop up two blogs completely opposing views. Views could read them, and then at the end of them, we'd ask them to vote again. And it was just, it was kind of a very simplistic way of explaining that we're not just going to give you one, one version of the story. Um, and then during my time there, I mean, it was it was obviously news and politics that we were best known for, but we very much moved into the lifestyle area as well. Arianna Huffington had um, a mission built around the idea of the third metric, which was redefining success beyond money and power, um, and it talked a lot about mindfulness, meditation, good health, um, and using those to, to get ahead at work. So it wasn't a kind of anti-career um, message, but trying to think about it as more way of living so we did a lot of content around that and it's something that you know again I think the site and the brand is well known for and she's had books as part of that too um, and that kind of brings me uh, sort of up to date certainly to where um I, uh, I met David um, when I was being what was next, and, and really wasn't sure what would be next, um, and got approached by Headhunter about a role at WGSN, um, which I can't imagine any of you have heard of before. Um, it stands for Worth Global Style Network. A man called Mark Worth started it about, I think, 18 years ago, um, and they're a trend forecasting company. Um, and I had heard of them because of my uh, time on uh, in the kind of fashion industry. Um, and um, suddenly thought well actually this is a brand that isn't very well known and I love taking brands that aren't very well known and making them famous uh, so the opportunity to do that um, but also to work for a, a truly global uh, organisation and to learn something and I think that that's kind of ties back into the, what the media industry will continue to be and the people who will be most successful within it are those who are open to new ideas and to learning something new and I wanted to go somewhere where I'd learn something new and I've been there for less than two months and I can tell you I'm definitely learning things uh, every day um, and what they do as an organization is we've got designers analysts forecasters and journalists taking trends and translating them across numerous different industries they're best known and their their main client base is in the fashion industry um, so kind of from Primark to Prada Um, But we also have lots of other brands from technology, autos, mobile phone brands, social media brands, who are tapping into our forecasting expertise to work out what's next. Um, And I've been really blown away by the kind of creativity um, and and the knowledge that the people in in my new team have. So I sat through a presentation um, a couple of weeks ago um, and was learning about museums in Mongolia that are these kind of the most futuristic modern museum, well, building that you've ever seen, and it's in the middle of a desert in Mongolia. Now, that's a very, very niche knowledge base, and yet we're looking at that and then working out what, what does something like that mean for wider trends? What does that mean for the future? Learning about um, Baby X. I don't know if anyone here has heard no. of Baby X. Mm-hmm. So Baby X is essentially a a baby brain inside a computer that is being taught as you would teach another baby. Go and Google it and look it on YouTube. This is where, if I was, if I was a slide kind of person, I should show you the video of Baby X. And, and you have this baby's face on a computer screen and someone teaching it words as you would do t- any. It's the freakiest thing you have ever seen. It's kind of scary. Um, but this is the kind of technology which has being developed in Silicon Valley at the moment. And this will have an impact on our lives. I, I, when I was at Marie Claire, the um, managing editor and I went to a conference all about mobile and we sat there and they said next year is going to be the year of the mobile and uh, we sat there and we were like yeah we, mm, we can't really get our heads around this and, and we partnered with a company and we created a mobile version of Marie Claire and we downloaded and it cost £27 to download two pages and yeah, no, that's not going to work. And again, this is not that long ago. So we, we shelved the plans to do Marie Claire Mobile at that time. And now I've got two of them in my bag at the moment. That's where our content is being consumed. Again, even in the the three years I was at Huffington Post, the shift from desktop consumption through to mobile consumption was immense. Where we got our traffic from. So as I mentioned before, SEO or search engine optimization was hugely important to getting traffic for us Facebook, social media sites hugely important as well but then there was a whole area called dark social we were seeing traffic coming through but couldn't actually pinpoint it our German team did some investigation WhatsApp, WhatsApp was sending huge amounts of traffic to the German site we hadn't, uh, we hadn't banked on that we didn't know why it was coming but we made sure we got WhatsApp sharing buttons on the articles pretty damn quick so it's it's that kind of, the, the way the industry is moving, I, I don't think we <coughs> can underestimate how important technology is um, as a part of that um, and how that will evolve going forward. So, you know, the Google Glasses, the Apple Watches. And I think um, it's it's very easy to sit there and think, well, you know that's the future, and that's those crazy kids over in uh, San Francisco. Um, but it will, and it is having an impact on the way that people consume media today. And we need to be thinking about that as we craft our content strategies going forwards. Um, coming up to half an hour, I could go on and on and on. Um, I'll just kind of let me sort of summarise, and then hopefully we can we can talk a little bit more openly. But I think, as I said at the beginning. I, I genuinely think this is the most exciting time to be working in the media industry, but there's good and bad that comes out of that. Um, social media gets a pretty bad rap, um, and, and rightly so in, in many instances, and I think you know, the, the rise of the troll, um, again, even when I was launching Having to Post, it wasn't something we even really considered. We knew that people sometimes said really nasty things in comments, but actually the levels to which that got to. Um, I spent some time with Caroline Criado Perez, for those of you who don't know, she led the charge against the Bank of England, um, getting rid of women across its banknotes. A seemingly fairly innocuous task. Um, and she she got so many death threats and rape threats uh, on Twitter that it, it moved through the prosecution. Um, and I think, again, it makes a very easy headline. Uh, media feminist gets rape threats via Twitter and most of us discount it until you sit down with this person who is so visibly shaken and so terrified of going anywhere that she won't go without her family. She had a puppy that she just wouldn't be parted from. Um, and, and actually the impact that was having on her, and the fact that she was still prepared to continue to go out there and campaign, I think is kind of testament to her um, willpower. And, and And seeing what it had kind of reduced her to, I was amazed that she continued to do that. Um, we made the call actually after that summer to uh, remove anonymous comments on the HuffPost platform and we got quite a lot of negative feedback people felt you know the right to anonymity free speech online and a you know a, a liberal organization like Huffington Post why were they doing that but we wanted to do our bit um, and and that's why we made that decision at that time um, and you know people can have opinions either way so I, I don't um, even in this brave new world that I'm hugely proud to have been a part of um, I don't think that we can discount that there are there are negative ways, and you know the new uh, new head of um, uh, GCHQ talking about how the internet providers need to start taking more responsibility and and the the place they play in international terrorism these things are all now part and parcel of the media it's not just we're reporting on them we're using these platforms we're using them as a traffic base and an audience base so I think these are as a kind of modern day journalist or editor all aspects to this industry that that we need to be aware of Um, and even though I've moved into a slightly different company you know the job of WGSN is to look to the future Um, and now I'm kind of doing it from a from a slightly different angle but trying to work out what's coming next And even though I might not be reporting on it, um, kind of helping shape uh, media going forward. And that's that's definitely an exciting place to be right now.